the word Genesis, in its very literal sense, means beginning. Uh, sometimes the word Genesis is used in that basic literal sense. For instance, someone could be describing their business operations and they might say the genesis of this business was 20 years ago when so-and-so did this or that. And so all he would be saying is this business began, this was how it started. The word genesis means literally beginning. But of course, the most common association of the word Genesis is with that first book in our Bible, the book of Genesis. And I think very literally we could say that Genesis is a book about beginnings. And so many important things are revealed there. The first few chapters, in fact, uh, in those first few chapters, we observe multiple things, multiple firsts that took place, beginnings that are there. And in our study this morning, what we want to do is just look at those first few chapters of the book of Genesis. I encourage you to turn there in your Bibles, and we'll just be mentioning some things that were firsts there in Genesis. Thanks, thanks for being here this morning. We appreciate your presence very much. We're grateful for everyone who's here. As Joel mentioned, a lot of folks who were away traveling are back, and we're grateful for that. Unfortunately, we've been told that there are several others who are fixing to leave. And I'm, I'm of the opinion, I don't know, I haven't, I haven't gotten... Uh, authority for this yet, but I'm thinking maybe that the elders need to institute a a uh, permission slip that you have to have before you can go off. <laughs> uh, you, you all might think about that. We've had a lot of people traveling. We're glad that you're able to do so. Uh, certainly pray for safe travels and always glad when you come back to be here. We're grateful for our visitors this morning. Uh, please come back every time you have a chance to be here and ask any questions that you have about what you see here as we worship together at College View this morning. Let's talk about Genesis, the book of beginnings. In Genesis, of course, we read about the beginning of the world, and that is the very most obvious beginning that is mentioned there in Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Creation. Creation, and not evolution, is the explanation for how we got here. In, in fact, I really believe that the theory of evolution is a theory in crisis. There are so many scientific discoveries and new understandings of scientific things that are making it so that the theory of evolution just cannot hold up. It is not a legitimate explanation for how we got here. But on the other hand, if you think about Moses' account of creation, Moses wrote those first five books of the Old Testament that are sometimes referred to as the Pentateuch. Moses wrote about creation. He did that about 3,500 years ago. He told about how God created everything that is in the world and in the universe. And interestingly, that creation account still works. It still makes sense. It still harmonizes with what we see in the universe. Uh, and so creation. Certainly Genesis talks about creation, and that's a valuable thing because one of the most basic questions men have is, where did I come from? How did I get here? And Genesis answers that. It answers about the creation of the world. We also see the beginning of mankind in the book of Genesis. In chapter 1, verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Man is not just a higher life form. You know, there's a lot of animals in the world, and we're just one of them. We're a little more evolved. We're a little higher in order. We have a little more uh, mental capacity, for uh, for instance. 
but we're just a higher form of life on earth. That's not true. That is not true. Man is unique in all of creation. Man, as is described here, is made in the image of God. (coughs) When we talk about man made in the image of God, we do not suggest by that to mean that man looks like God in physical appearance because we don't know what God looks like. God is a spirit. He is not a physical being. So we don't think that this is saying that God has a hand with five fingers on the hand, although sometimes figuratively we read about the finger of God. We're not saying that God has a face with two eyes and a nose and a mouth and ears, although the Bible figuratively speaks of the eyes of God or the ears of God. When it says that we're made in His image, what's being described there is that we are made as an eternal being. We have an eternal soul. And in that sense, we are made in the image of God. But Genesis describes the beginning of mankind. Furthermore, in Genesis, we read about the beginning of work. What if you had an ideal situation? If you could describe just a perfect existence, your ideal circumstances, what would it be? Would it be like a a lifelong vacation? You know, you never had any work, you never had any responsibilities. Or would you like to live in such a way that everybody else takes care and provides for your needs? You know, you don't have to work because others do and they just give you the things that you need. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people in our society today who have that view. I don't want to work, but I want to have stuff. And so I think everybody else should give me stuff, although I don't work. I can work, but I won't. I just want what other people will provide to me. You know, that is not the ideal circumstance. In the book of Genesis, we read about God creating man and placing him in the Garden of Eden. And one of the things that was there in the Garden of Eden, in that perfect existence for man, was work. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it. And to keep it. Notice he had work to do to dress and keep the garden. And so, in the perfect environment for man, obviously sin had not entered the world yet. There was no corruption. There was not anything bad in the earth. And in that ideal, perfect environment, there was work for man to do. And so we understand that in God's plan, we are created to have that need and purpose to work. And we read that in Genesis. Furthermore, We see in Genesis the beginning of the concept of law. Again, men seem to think that no rules should be imposed. That really, if if, if everything was just ideal, there would be no rules. And you could do just whatever you wanted to do. You could just have your own way and just live like you want to. Perfect would be to do whatever you want to do. But again, Genesis points out to us that that was not the case. Again, in the imperfect, in, in a perfect environment for man to live by, there were rules. In Genesis 2, verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Notice, God commanded. And so there were rules, there were laws. There was something that man was expected to submit to and obey. But I really want to stress to you that that is in in the context of the perfect environment in the Garden of Eden. Work to do, law to keep. Therefore, I would argue, and I don't think anybody could really 
deny this, that in our very basic nature, God has created us so that we need that. We need uh, we need work to do, and we need a law to keep rules to live by. Certainly there in the book of Genesis, we read about the beginning of marriage. There's a lot of current debate going on about what constitutes marriage. Even this past week in the news, you may have heard where the U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear some appeals to lower court rulings which threw out state laws saying that marriage was only between a man and a woman. Several states had even enacted state constitutional amendments which said, defined marriage to be between a man and a woman. The Supreme, some, some courts had thrown those things out. The Supreme Court refused to override those court rulings. And therefore, it, it, we're hearing already immediately, and there'll be more of it, same-sex marriage is going to become legal everywhere. No one is going to be able to oppose that. Men think they can define marriage, a man and a man, or a woman and a woman. But, of course, the question that has to be asked is, if we can redefine marriage that way, where would we stop? Uh, how can we say that that's the limits then? Okay, we'll go man, two men together or two women together. We'll call that marriage. Well, why couldn't you take a man and 20 women and call that marriage? Or who knows what other combinations you might come up with. If you can redefine marriage, then there's really no stopping place to that. But God defined marriage at the very beginning. In Genesis 2, verse 24, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. God defined marriage at the beginning. We need to honor that. And we really need to see it as the only workable solution to our existence here on earth. Marriage is defined by God. We see its beginnings in the very early chapters of Genesis. But also in those first chapters of Genesis, we see the beginning of temptation. Uh, you know this story well. Stephen read it for us just a few moments ago from Genesis 3, beginning verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? She answered and repeated what God had instructed them. Then the serpent said to the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. I want you to notice Satan's approach there. And you've studied this before, I'm sure. Notice that Satan, first of all, argued God did not mean what he said. You, you shall not surely die. God didn't mean that. He didn't mean that. You don't, have to, you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to take that at face value. It's interesting today that a lot of people still do that. God didn't, it doesn't mean what it says. You know, God doesn't mean what he says. That was Satan's approach at the very beginning as he was tempting the woman to commit sin. He said, God didn't mean that. It doesn't mean what he said. And then, furthermore, Satan, uh, I think he impugned God's... Uh, very nature in, in that he said, God is not treating you fairly. God doesn't want you to be knowledgeable. God doesn't want you to be as he is. He does not want you to know uh, good and evil. And so Satan said, God's not being fair to you. This is not, this is not reasonable what he's put upon you. And again, we see uh, people doing that very same thing today. But here we see the very beginnings of temptation, even in the Garden of Eden. Eve was tempted by Satan. And so we should be aware of the fact that temptation is a reality. But of course, 
we know that if it had stopped right there, if she had resisted, if she had said no, then everything would have been fine. But that's the same story with us, right? It's not a sin to be tempted. All are tempted. Jesus, our Savior, was tempted. When we yield to temptation, that's the problem. And, of course, we see that in Genesis. Not only do we see that temptation began there, but we also see that sin began there. Uh, temptation progressed and sin resulted when Eve submitted to that temptation. When we yield, when we violate God's law, we sin. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat. Do you see what happened here? Do you see how temptation works? And do you see what causes us to yield to temptation? We yield to temptation when we desire our own gratification. It's about me. It's about what I want, what I like, what, what will please me, rather than what God wants for me and what He has commanded me to do. Notice, she saw. What did she see? This was good food. It was pleasant to the eye. It was desired to make one wise. And so it was all about her and gratifying her desires rather than pleasing God. That's still the way temptation and sin works today. Uh, here we are uh, all these many centuries later, all these thousands of years later, and yet it's still at work the same way. And so we see how temptation works. We see how sin can result, and that's still the same. But its beginnings were all the way back there in the very early chapters of Genesis. Also in Genesis, we see the beginning of excuse-making. I'm sure that you would agree with me when I say that human beings are experts at making excuses. We may not be good at a whole lot of other things, but we can be very good at making excuses when we fail. And that has its roots in the early chapters of Genesis as well. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 12, the man said, when challenged by God about what he had done, the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord said to the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. We've often pointed out that Adam sort of made a double excuse. Well, it was the woman who did this, he said. And by the way, God, you're the one who gave me the woman. So it's her fault and probably your fault too, God, because you gave me the woman. So he's certainly trying to pass the responsibility. And then Eve said, well, it was the serpent. The serpent beguiled me and I did eat. To, to hear Adam and Eve speak here, you would think that really no one was responsible for what happened here. It, was, it sure wasn't their fault. But of course, that's not the way God saw it. That continues today. And people uh, always are trying to make excuses, pass it off on someone else. It's not my fault. Someone else did something that caused me to do this. We need to understand the notion of accountability. Uh, we need to see the futility of excuse-making and the necessity of acknowledging our wrongs and being responsible for the things that we've done wrong. But I'll tell you, we're fighting a, a trend that has existed since the very beginning, the trend to make excuses when we have done wrong. Another thing that we see the beginnings of in the early chapters of Genesis is misery. The beginning of misery. Now I want you to emphasize that prior to the sin, everything was perfect. 
I mean, I, I don't mean just nice, good. I mean perfect, literally perfect. Everything for man on earth was perfect until that sin occurred. You know, someone might describe a, a very beautiful setting, uh, you know, maybe, you know, you're at a place, you know, beautiful woods and a nice lake, and you've got a cabin right there on it, and you don't even hardly have, before your fishing line can hit the water, the fish jumps out of the water and grabs your lure, and you, yeah, I mean, and there, there are, uh, you know, huge buck deer just walking up to you, you know, uh, if, if you're a hunter or, well, you, you name the idyllic situation, that's not what we're talking about. As good a situation as you might be able to describe, this was better than that. This was perfect, literally, completely, ultimately perfect existence in the Garden of Eden. But now misery enters. We read the beginning of all kinds of misery that entered. In Genesis 3, verse 7, it says, The eyes of both of so they partook of the forbidden fruit, and the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. The first of the miseries that we could document here was the misery of guilt and the misery of fear. And I want to suggest to you that's what sin does. Sin causes guilt and sin causes fear. And that was seen here as a result of what they had done. They felt guilty. They felt afraid. That still happens. That misery that was introduced there by sin continues when we sin. When we sin, we have this problem of guilt and we have the problem of fear. And so it all began. There, the evil fruits of sin. Also, we know another bit of the misery which began was the misery of a harder life physical, physically. And we still suffer those consequences. Genesis 3, verse 16, beginning, He said unto the woman, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field, and the sweat of, in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return to the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and to dust thou shalt return. And so physical consequences resulted and began right here uh, in the early chapters of Genesis. Notice, uh, the, the hardship of childbearing is mentioned. The difficulty of, of making a living from the ground, uh, have to work hard in order to make it bring forth its fruit, sweat and labor, and ultimate physical death are all introduced here uh, as forms of misery that resulted. You want to know why it is the way that it is? Why we suffer uh, the physical hardships that we suffer in life? We can trace it back here. We can see where it began. We can see its roots here in the very earliest chapters of Genesis. But that's not all. And that's not the most important form of misery that resulted. The ultimate misery was the separation from God. In chapter 3, verse 23, the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he played... And he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. 
separation from God, the worst of the consequences of sin, separation from God. Ultimately, this would require the blood of God's own Son to resolve what began there in Genesis, sin and separation from God. When we sin, we see Adam being separated from God in the sense he was driven out of the garden. We are separated from God when we choose to sin. God turns His face from us. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. And the only resolve to that problem was that God would ultimately have to send His Son to be a sacrifice for our sins. We see misery, lots of misery that had its beginnings there in the early chapters of Genesis. We also see in Genesis, in those first chapters, the beginning of worship. In chapter 4, verse 3, in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought forth the fruit of the ground and offering to the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve, made effort here to worship God. I, I would not suggest that this necessarily is the very first instance of worship, although it's the first that's mentioned. I, I would have to believe that Adam and Eve themselves had been engaged in acts of worship to God prior to this. But here we read. And what we get from this is that from the very earliest of times, men have been worshiping beings. Cain and Abel brought gifts, acts of worship toward God. We see it there. And it's interesting that anthropologists and archaeologists and all those who study such things say that they can see this thread throughout all of human history. Man, wherever he has been found in, in ancient times, the history that they've left behind, the artifacts that they have left behind, man has been a worshiping being. That's one of the arguments we make for the fact that man is different, that man is a created being, not an evolved being. If we just evolved from the lower life forms, from whence did it come, this necessity of worship, the need that man has to worship, is seen in all men everywhere. We see its beginnings here. In Genesis, worship began, but not just worship in general, but also we see that unacceptable worship began there. We see a delineation between worshiping God the way He said and worshiping in unacceptable ways. You remember in Genesis chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and his offering He had not respect. I think it's interesting here at the very first record of worship, it shows an account of unacceptable worship. And, and from that, we would say it is evident that God has always insisted that He be worshipped as He says, not as we think. Not our way, but His way. There is a right way to serve and worship God, and there's a wrong way to worship and serve God. And it's, that's always been the case, all the way back to Genesis. When we first read about men worshipping God, we see the instance of unacceptable worship. Finally, let me suggest to you that in Genesis, in those early chapters, we read about enmity between the godly and the ungodly. In Genesis 4, you know the follow-up of Cain and Abel. Cain was very wroth, verse 5, and his countenance fell. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. On that very day, began a pattern of opposition by those who do not want to submit to God. 
And they oppose not only God, but they oppose the people of God who will try to do God's way, God's things in God's ways. And so we see this enmity between the godly and the ungodly. It started way back then. It continues even to today. Well, lots of things then to learn from those first chapters of Genesis. A lot of beginnings there. Genesis is the, is the book of beginnings. Not just beginnings of the earth and not just the beginning of man, although those are very important truths taught there uh, in, in Genesis. But we see the start of lots of other things that continue even to our day. We need to learn some lessons from those things, make application. We can certainly learn and benefit from those things we read in the first chapters of Genesis. Thanks for your attention to what we've had to say and hope that our thoughts have been helpful and will encourage us all in living for God. As we bring the lesson to a close, we ask you to consider your standing before God right now. Are you right with Him? Have you obeyed that simple gospel plan of salvation? Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. Have you done that? If not, you need to make that decision without delay. If you have questions, if you need more study, say so. We'd be glad to study with you. But if you're ready to obey the gospel, we're ready to assist you. If you're a Christian already, but you've not been faithful to your Lord, we urge you to come back to Him in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing this song.